It's Tuesday, May 15th, and this is The Daily Dive. On Monday, the Supreme Court struck down the Professional and Amateur Sports Protection Act on a 6-3 vote, which cleared the way for states to allow gambling on sports across the nation. The case stemming from New Jersey creates an opening to bring sports betting out in the open. Currently, estimates say that Americans illegally wager about $150 billion on sports each year. And if the law were to be struck down, up to 32 states could offer sports betting within five years. We'll speak to Wall Street Journal sports columnist Jason Gay about the ruling and how it might change the game and sports media. Also, as more volcanic fissures open up on Hawaii's Big Island, there are concerns that at Kilauea Summit, there could be an explosion of steam that could send 10-ton boulders flying in the air, as well as huge ash clouds. We will speak to volcanologist Dr. Peter Ward about how this explosive event could occur and when this all might start to calm down. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. New Jersey is, uh, you know, a big state for gambling. We were the second state to have casino gambling in the country. Uh, This is a natural extension of that. Um, And the people decided they wanted it. This is good for the entire state, and it's good for the people who want to bet on these games. We can take it out of illegality, take it out of uh, the shadows, and uh, bring it out into the light. It's going to be good for state revenue. Joining us now is Jason Gay, sports columnist for The Wall Street Journal. All right, so the Supreme Court ruled, and they said uh, that states are allowed to gamble on sports across the nation now. The justices voted 6-3 to three to strike down the Professional and Amateur Sports Protection Act, which was formed in 1992. What did they say in their ruling? I mean, basically what they're doing is they're not actually, you know, giving states, you know, a roadmap to doing this. They're just striking down a federal prohibition against sports gambling happening in states outside of Nevada. And so there are a number of the, the case was brought by the state of New Jersey, but there are a number of states that have been preparing for this day. The ruling doesn't come as a great shock. And the assumption is that a number of states will line up in terms of finding ways to uh, create legal sports gaming in their territory. Every state would need to create their own set of rules, so it it could look different across the entire nation. That's true. It could, for sure. But I think that there's a general consensus that, given the way that technology has grown and their accessibility to it, that this is really going to be probably more of an Internet-born kind of uh, gaming. You know, there will be sports books in New Jersey. You can go to a horse racetrack. People are saying, within weeks, you're going to be able to do this, go to a horse track and bet on, uh, say, baseball games. But at the moment, nothing... Immediately happening. Why did New Jersey initially bring this case out? I think like any number of places that they're just seeing a potential revenue source. You know, this is not terribly different than state lotteries, you know, which have been, you know, a boon for uh, states in terms of taxation and revenue creation. This is just another way of tapping money. Obviously, you know, quite a bit more complicated in terms of the mechanics than scratch tickets and the like. But I think that for a lot of places, they're just seeing this as too much money to, to deny. The money around it is inarguable. I mean, if you believe the estimates, there are many billions of dollars wagered underground in the United States. And so by lifting this up from below the surface and making it public and legal, it's an opportunity for states to make some money. What have the major professional sports leagues said? NBA, NFL, I think NHL and M- MLB were all kind of involved in this. Well, I think that they're uh, mostly cagey and cautious. I'm sure behind the scenes they're quite excited and curious about the uh, prospect of tapping that revenue stream themselves. I mean, it's an incredibly valuable property that they have and now an opportunity to monetize it another way. The NBA, the Basketball League, has been the most progressive in terms of being out there really years ago now saying that they were in favor of this, that they liked the idea of striking down PAPSA, giving states the rights to create sports gaming and basically just argue 
doing you know from a common sense standpoint this is already happening this is everywhere why not give everybody a chance to do this in full public view and their argument is that by bringing sunlight into it that you're going to be able to actually enhance integrity I mean that's always sort of like you know a third rail when we talk about sports betting you know how do we how are we assure the results have a fair integrity well the NBA's argument is that by making it public you're going to be able to monitor it you're going to see where the money goes you're going to see if the money suddenly shifts you're going to have a better way of tracking if things are on the up and up so they kind of led the charge here you know they have been an advocate for this for quite a while your latest column for the Wall Street Journal I really love it here comes the sports gambling apocalypse and then later on you say or maybe it will be pretty normal what's going to be the effect on the game I want to ask you a couple questions related to this but on the game itself I know that people are saying you know a lot of people with deep pockets are going to maybe influence somebody to cause a fumble or you know miss a kick or something like that yeah what, what do you think is going to happen on that on that area I don't want to be sitting here predicting. If I had a great prediction, I'd go down to the gambling hall and, and, and bet on it, right? I do feel that, you know, a lot of hyperbole today on both sides of it. I don't think that this is going to, like, just completely turn things around in terms of the way that sports is commodified in this country. You don't have to look too far. Look overseas in Europe where you've had sports betting in stadiums for many, many years now. Um, and then you also have standard sports fan and people who are following the team for the team's sake. From the integrity standpoint, I don't see it being the kind of thing that's going to seriously jeopardize the major, major sports leagues of baseball, football, basketball, and so on. I mean, you're already talking about these people are minted millionaires already. The motivation they might have to make a few thousand dollars by throwing a game will be significantly less than someone in a lower league. And if you look at the way that sports gambling controversies have happened in the past, they tend to be places where people aren't terribly well compensated. You see our college sports, of course, and I think of a sport that I love, tennis, where there is an epidemic of gambling happening, but it's not happening at the sort of major events in tennis. It's not happening at the Wimbledon and the U.S. Opens at any sort of grand level. Where it is happening, where it is a real problem for sort of the minor leagues of tennis, is the, the, the challengers and the futures and so on, where it's easier to manipulate the talent. Or boxing and those darn judges. Yeah, no, true, <laughs> true. Um, well, how, will it, how do you think it might change the viewing experience? I know in your column you wrote, it would be super annoying. Third quarter, people are on their phones trying to place bets mid-game. Well, think about it, right? You know, we all have experience of going to professional sporting events or any kind of sporting event, and there are pros and cons to that. Just imagine the new dynamic of you're surrounded by people who are on their phones. Maybe you will be one of those people on their phone uh, making a bet about, okay, who's going to be the leading scorer in the third quarter? Who's going to catch the next touchdown pass? And you have some money riding on it, and all of a sudden there's this game within a game. The leagues love it because obviously it's revenue. It's a more engaged fan because you actually have something on the line. But I can't help but feel a little bit like a fuddy-duddy and feel like, I don't know if that's the kind of environment that I want to go watch a, a sporting event in. If I wanted that, I could go to Vegas, I could sit in a sports book, but that doesn't feel like a tremendously organic or fun experience to me. Like you said, it's a game within the game and it, you're changing everything at that point. Finally, <laughs> the last thing I wanted to ask, how do you think it's going to change sports media? You wrote something really uh, interesting in your article. I totally believe it yeah, I to mean, ring true. I appreciate that. I mean, I, I, I think that it will change sports media significantly 
family for two things. One is that nobody's promised tomorrow in the media, not you and not I. You have this economic boom to an industry that's searching for what the next market is, right? You have people who are all of a sudden going to really want information and information that gives them an edge. Now, the question is, like, is that what it's all going to be? Is every time you turn on a sports network, are you just going to see people telling you, like, okay, here's where you're going to make your money in tonight's basketball game. Here's the best way you're going to be able to make a profit over baseball the next month. Something sort of very dull-sounding about that, but I have no doubt at all that, 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 that media companies are fascinated by it. Right, and we see it already. You know, football season rolls around. There's dedicated shows to people's fantasy leagues. So, yeah, you're right. It's just going to be how to get you that edge so that you're going to make money off of the, off of the games. that times a thousand, because when you think about it, okay, fantasy leagues, I know there's ways that people make money and they win their championship and so on, but when you're talking about daily, hourly, minute-by-minute betting, that's just a whole different level of prognostication and prediction and analysis. So if you think those shows are bad, there's something even more terrible coming. All right, Jason Gay, sports columnist for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Hey, thank you guys. Bye-bye. In the bigger explosions, I've actually seen rocks fly over the tree line, and I can feel in my body. Mom's uh, just moved here from from Oregon about a month ago, and uh, her her house burnt to the ground. With all of her belongings from 88 years, everything's gone. Joining us now is Dr. Peter Ward. He's a volcanologist. He's worked with the United States Geological Survey as a research geophysicist. He's been in the volcano game for a long time. So the volcano in Hawaii on the Big Island, Kilauea, has been erupting now, which I, I thought was actually a very interesting thing. It's been erupting since 1983 constantly. How's that happening? How's that been happening? There have been eruptions regularly since that time. I mean, we consider it as one major eruption. It's fountaining up high on the volcano, and then at different times, it lets out lava flows down below. What's changed in the last couple of weeks is that the fissures are opening down on the on the flank, on the east, east rift zone, which is about 20 miles east of the main volcano. And the lava is pouring out through these fissures. Is there something different that happened, though, that caused it from just kind of bubbling over the top to now really creating these fissures? I've been hearing a lot about the lava lake at the top and the lava kind of dissipating down. Is that what's causing the fissures? The way this volcano has erupted for a long time is you see the lava uh, in the big caldera at the top boiling away, and then it goes down through into the rift zone and comes out on the land. What's going on at the main part of the volcano right now, which you're hearing much about, is a concern that there could be a big explosive eruption because of steam. The big lava lake, which we've been looking at for many years up there, suddenly receded. Suddenly the lava has poured back into the earth more than a thousand feet down. And what happens when that happens is the water table can then mix with the lava, causing steam. And we're seeing that at the moment. The problem is if the top part of the vent begins to cave in, it can block the main part of the vent, and then you get an explosion. And that's what they're worried about at the moment. This has been going on for a couple of weeks now, and they're saying that this explosion could happen you know, mid-May, any, any moment now. When are we going to get the sense that this is going to start calming down? There's two things going 
going on. In terms of the explosion, they're convinced that it would not be life-threatening, that they have closed the area around the volcano, up around Holly Mau Crater. Visitors are not allowed to go there at the moment because if there was this explosion, there could be blocks coming out that could hurt people. But in terms of the summit explosion, it's probably going to produce a lot of ash, which would be a nuisance for a while, but it's not life-threatening. Now, down on the flank where the main part of this eruption is going on, there's a lot of SO2, sulfur dioxide, being released from the basalts, and this is sulfur dioxide plus water creates sulfuric acid. So when you breathe sulfur dioxide into your lungs, it's dangerous. And there is a problem with that in the immediate vicinity of where the basalts are coming out. Now, an eruption of this type down on the flank could go on for months. And you've studied Kilauea specifically for many years now. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I, I know you placed some type of sensors on it. Yeah, back in 1967, I uh, did extensive work uh, on Kilauea, and I've worked on active volcanoes all around the, the world. I installed a number of seismographs on volcanoes in the western United States and down through Central America in a, a prototype volcano surveillance system. I've had experience with volcanoes all over the world. Kilauea, they call it a shield volcano. What does that mean exactly? What it means is that it's got, it's got gentle slopes. It's not a big steep mountain like you see around the Pacific Basin or see Mount Lassen or Shasta or any of those kind of things. It's much more gentle slope, just a few degrees, maybe eight degrees. And that's because the lavas coming out are very thin. You see them flowing almost like a river. And so they flow down the side, building the volcano up. Are we still uh, worried about more fissures opening up? I, uh, I also read something that the, the ground there is fairly new in relative terms. The ground where everybody built their houses is on lava that erupted just a few hundred years ago. And some of it may, we had a major eruption there in 1955, and then there was just to the east of this area, a major amount of lava came out in 1960. This part of Hawaii, all of Hawaii, is built up by these kind of lava flows. And these are actually pretty small flows to begin with right now. There have been 18 fissures opened up. There may be many, many more, and there may be a lot more magma coming out. I mean, this eruption could go on for some time. Can you tell us a little bit more about the magma and the lava? I've seen somewhere that it gets up to 2,000 degrees, but it is relatively slow moving, but we've seen all the dramatic pictures and photo and videos of it swallowing trees and cars and different things. Can you tell us anything more about that? Well, this is a basaltic volcano, and basalts are the most primitive of the things erupted by, vol by volcanoes. Uh, and it's very fluid. It's very hot. It comes out through the cracks and, and, and flows much like molasses or something down the side of the hill. And there have been many times in the past when it flows down into the ocean, and you see that. This is very typical of this kind of volcano. The other kind of volcano we're more familiar with are the really explosive volcanoes, as we see all around the Pacific Rim and in Indonesia and many other areas. And this is where the eruption may only last for a day or a few hours even, but it can be extremely explosive and can kill a lot of people. And in that case, if there are lava flows, they tend to, they can be hundreds of feet thick. So it's a very different kind of magma because this hot rock, the basalt, interacts with the crustal material under the volcano and changes
changes its chemistry. So when it comes out, it's much more viscous, much stickier. Finally, I just wanted to ask, how does one become a volcanologist? Uh, what did you do that, that really interested you about volcanoes and, and this field of study? Well, it's actually kind of a fun st- story. I was a freshman at Dartmouth College years ago, and I was supposed to sign up for my first courses, and they did it alphabetically. So with the name Ward, I was at the end of the line. And when I got up to the head of the line, I said I wanted to take geography. The lady looked up and said, sorry, it's full. What are you going to take? Quick, what's your answer? I said, geology. And it turned out that I ended up working for the professor of geology. Within a couple of months, I sat in the middle of the front row. I just loved it. He was a world expert on volcanoes. And he took me to climb my first active volcano when I was 19. Wow, that's pretty amazing. And then you just, I mean, fell in love with it after that. Is that, is that how it happens? Then it just becomes yeah, your, your focus after that? geology and, and physics, uh, and then I went on to graduate school in geophysics, and one of my specialties was volcanoes. That's when I went out and studied in Hawaii and then several other areas. And then working for the United States Geological Survey for 27 years, one of the main things the survey does is volcano studies. They manage the volcano observatory on, on uh Kilauea, and uh, they also have volcano observatories in the United States and, and other other states. Dr. Peter Ward, he's a volcanologist. Thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure being here. All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by John Considine. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.